Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Police in Kerdeline, Idaho, are getting threats from the public after arresting 31 members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front who were allegedly en route to disrupt a gay pride rally last weekend. Of the 149 calls that we know of so far that have come in, uh, they're about 50-50 split split between individuals in our community who are happy to to give us their name and tell us uh, that they're they're proud of the work that we did and they're they're happy to be a part of this community. And the other 50% who are completely anonymous and who want nothing more than to scream and yell at us Um, use some really choice words, uh, offer death threats against myself and other members of the police department merely for doing our jobs. Those people obviously remain anonymous and don't tell us where they're from, although we had a call as far away as uh, Norway. That was Kerr Police Chief Lee White. We will have more on the Patriot Front later in the episode and we'll ask extremism researcher John Lewis of George Washington University whether law enforcement is collecting the right kind of intelligence. Now on to a hardcore intelligence issue. Carl Ford is one of our most distinguished U.S. intelligence veterans. His career began long ago in South Vietnam, where he did two tours as an Army intelligence officer. Later on, with a master's degree in East Asia studies, he became a leading China expert at the Defense Intelligence Agency and then CIA, Along the way, he also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for East Asia at the Pentagon. After the Gulf War, he became Deputy Assistant for the Middle East and South Asia. He also served as a professional staff member for East Asia on the Committee for Foreign Relations and then back at CIA as its National Intelligence Officer for East Asia. But perhaps his most noteworthy tour of duty for me came at the State Department. In May 2001, he was appointed Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research, known in short as INR. It's a relatively small office that has regularly outperformed its much larger agencies in the predictions of world events and the outcomes of U.S. military and foreign policy initiatives. There's a reason I've recited Carl Ford's distinguished resume, and I could have gone on. It's because today he calls U.S. intelligence, quote, broken, utterly broken. Its faulty prediction that Ukraine would fall to the Russians in three weeks was just the latest example, he said. An example of a systematic breakdown in its intelligence methods, its gathering priorities, its analysis and reporting. And when a man with Carl Ford's resume says that, we've just got to sit up and take notice. Carl Ford, welcome to Spy Talk. Earlier this month, the AP reported that U.S. officials had launched a review of U.S. intelligence on Russia and Ukraine prior to the invasion. It turns out that U.S. intelligence massively underestimated the capability of Ukrainian leader Zelensky to rally his nation against the Russians and likewise overestimated the efficiency of the Russian military. Now, the U.S. intelligence budget for 2022 is $63 billion dollars 
for national intelligence, and another $23.3 billion for military intelligence. So what do you make of that? Well, as you, I think, know, I believe that the system is broken, and I don't know if it can ever be fixed. Broken. Just simply broken. There was a point when U.S. officials, I can still remember it was a manpower study, and it decided that if you weren't talking directly to a senior policymaker or the president with your reports, then you weren't important. That the only mm. kinds of reports that were important were the ones that were in the PDB or in other current intelligence documents. And at that point, at CIA, for example, when I was an analyst, we had an office of political research where some of the top China political analysts were located. I mean, people would come in from the universities to talk to them. We had the best China economist in the Office of Economic Research. We also had an Office of Strategic Research, which I belong to, and it was mostly the Soviet Union, but I did China, and there was a little bit done on North Korea, but not very much. But we had about six or seven of us that were working on China. And you were doing good work, I think you're about to say. Well, the type of work that we were beginning to do, I think was beginning to be was beginning to be significant. But all of a sudden, OER, OSR, OPR, the Office of Missiles and Space, all of them were chopped. And the only standing office was the Office of Current Reporting, Current Intelligence, OCI. Uh, this was in the mid-70s. Okay. And it was at CIA, and it was the Office of Political Research of, uh, that were part of the DI, the Defense, uh, the Director of Intelligence, Office of uh, Political Research, Office of Economic Research, Office of Missiles and Space, Office of Strategic Research, uh, and then there was an Office of Current Intelligence. Mm-hmm. All four of the other research offices were just simply closed down. They disappeared. And they had a change uh, to a geographical approach. But the people who were running that geographical approach all came from the Office of Current Intelligence, OCI. And so that the emphasis from that point on, from the mid to late 70s until today, the focus is on current reporting. And what does that mean? That means that you look at what happened last night and try to explain it to the president and other officials. If you have time, you've saved up a few things that you might think fit with that and you give an explanation. Uh, but it is very much sort of read and remember type work. What, what's, the, what's the matter with telling the president what happened last night? There's not anything the matter with telling him what's happened last night. What's difficult is trying to tell him why it happened last night and what was behind it. For example, the one of the issues that Senator King on the Senate Intelligence Committee just extortionated the DNI and I think it was the director of DIA, I'm not sure. 
basically was saying, why did you tell us of that they would reach Kiev in three days? This was the recent Senate Intelligence Committee hearing where top U.S. intelligence officials were summoned to explain how they got the intelligence on Ukraine so bad. Uh, why did you say that the Ukrainians wouldn't put up a fight? Mm -hmm. Well, they started to try to answer him, and he said, well, stop. I don't want to hear it. You were wrong. <laughs> and yeah. you told us you were wrong. I'm assuming you told the president wrong. And the reason is that in order to do detailed research to help explain things like, I asked the question that Senator King should ask, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the Russian army? Sure. It, it, I would think that that would be one of the most basic, basic questions, requirements right? of, right. well, of U.S. intelligence. Well, directed, to directed research starts off with a question. It doesn't start with an event. It starts with that question. What are the strengths and weaknesses? And then you have to then come up with a, uh, a research framework to say, okay, I have all this data. How can I use that to help answer that particular question? I think anybody who had even started that study would have said, listen, they have a problem with their NCOs. Uh, they have a lot of young officers, a lot of conscripts, and a lot of generals, but they don't have very many NCOs that are experienced. Now, let me get this straight. Are you saying that the CIA and military intelligence wasn't even tasked or seems not to have been tasked to get the basic details on the quality and uh, preparedness and weaponry of the Russian army? Or are you saying that they do this research, but it just doesn't bubble up to the top? No, they don't do the research. That's astounding. It is astounding. And what what do they do about the Russian army? They try to do it like they do anything else. They they, they read reports. They look at how many tanks they have, uh, and they say, "Oh, they got a lot of tanks and APCs." They'll they'll just crush the Ukrainians. Let's give them a guess three three weeks or three days rather. Well. Uh, my experience as a researcher has been that current reporting is almost always wrong wow. or misleading uh, and can be it can be fixed with research. But usually the first blush is a guesstimate <laughs> and you need some evidence uh, along with it. Now, the current reporting people, the analysts themselves are as good or better when I was an analyst. I, I have no quarrel with the quality of people at CIA and DIA. Now, when I was an analyst, most of the work done by analysts was for other analysts. It was micro studies that were written for other experts specifically. It wouldn't make any sense to a policymaker. Uh, it was too micro, too down in the weeds. But by accumulating these micro studies, the, the, we gained new knowledge. Mm -hmm. We improved our ability to make judgments. And the current reporter could dip into that and say, oh, by the way, we had this report last night. And by the way, there have been a number of micro studies that give us some indication of why that's happening. For example, we'd want to know if the tank treads break often. 
We yes. want to know if the fuel tanks on uh, a Chinese fighter uh, aircraft uh, work properly. Micro intelligence like that. Now, just to get this straight, I don't want to linger on this forever because right. we're talking about largely of the past. But are, are you are you suggesting that today? And I'd like to know how you know this today that we are we have given up collecting that kind of micro intelligence that would enable us to know exactly how the Chinese would respond or initiate an invasion, say, of Taiwan that we don't really know how good their tanks are or whether their aircraft function as advertised? The data is there. The ability to use that data has disappeared. Hmm. So that we have these large national databases that contain valuable information, but there's no way to actually use that data in any Quick and easy, accessible way. Accessible way. So when you talk about U.S. intelligence being broken, which is pretty dramatic, you mean that the information has been collected through various means, spies, technical means, spy satellites, electrical, uh, electronic intelligence. So we've collected all that, and we're good at it. Right. But it's sort of in this underground sea of information that is not readily and easily available to senior policymakers or even senior intelligence officials. So that's why it, they and underestimated. It any, and it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, it, mm -hmm. policymakers are not supposed to understand mm -hmm. what another expert would, would understand. Right. And that if you take every single analyst and make them current reporters, my own sense is that for every current reporter, you should have at least four researchers. Today, we have none. Reporter, you mean case officers and other people collecting well, intelligence? You no, know, I'm talking about analysis. Uh, it, for each current reporter, you need four research analysts doing work down in the down in the details, looking at the strengths and weaknesses of the Russian military, for example. If you have everybody doing the same thing, you could take half of the current reporting officers today and send them to the dark side of the moon, and no one would even miss. They wouldn't even know they were gone because the PDB would get written, the current reports would be get written, and the quality would be the same. We have just duplication after duplication at DIA, CIA, and INR, all looking at the same little bits and pieces of information that came in last night, trying to make sense of it and give some sense to the policymakers. And yet they get it wrong. Well, because they're not doing the research. They're simply trying to use current reporting techniques, which are entirely different than research techniques. I have to ask you, Carl... How do you know this? You were you haven't been in government for a long time. Long time, long time. How, how do you know that this great chasm, I guess I would call it, in intelligence exists today? That the Russians could take Kiev in three days, and that the Ukrainians wouldn't put up a fight. Mm -hmm. What's known publicly, and you just deduce from that that 
We're not getting it right. We're not getting it right. For our $86 billion. And it happened for a long time. I mean, we made a choice at some point that the policymakers wanted current reporting. And so that the quantity of current reporting flooding them with information was what we thought they wanted. I've never met a policymaker who really was satisfied with the intelligence that they were getting. I worked at the Pentagon. I worked on the Hill. I, when I was at the Pentagon, I would get a briefing. Some people from CIA would come in. They would give a briefing, and there would be oh, oh, great briefing, and everybody would clap and say how good it was. As soon as the door was closed, they forgot that I was a, still a CIA officer, and they would go, "That's the worst briefing I've ever heard." Well, it was a waste of our time, because what what we've forgotten is that quality is what they want. They want good intelligence, not the quantity of intelligence. Hmm. And good intelligence takes work. Uh, and the premier current reporting outfit is INR by far. That's State Department Intelligence and Research. That's right. They're better than CIA. They're better than uh, than DIA. Now, let me, let me stop you and ask you about that. You ran State Department Intelligence. Current uh, reporting. Current reporting. And um, I know you're probably a little bit biased about this. Who wouldn't be? But the public record and the not-so-public record shows that State Department intelligence was far more right, far more often than the CIA or military intelligence. Have I got that right? That's correct. And, and part of the reason is that at State Department INR, there is a great emphasis on expertise. A person can enter INR as an intelligence analyst and stay for the rest of their career working on Ireland, <laughs> or or they can work on Russia, or they can work on China. They don't have to move around and go to different places. They don't have to go overseas. They can stay and work on the same problem for years after years. You can't make up for that experience base that INR has. Now, they have young officers that come in from the Foreign Service, but they are taught by mentors, people who have been there, done that, can show them the ropes on how best to do current reporting. So they can spend their whole career just enriching their knowledge about, say, Chinese wheat crops or industry or Chinese techs. Yes. Now, most of the people at INR don't focus on military. Uh, they focus somewhat on economics, but primarily on political events. They, for example, in the most recent case where CIA and DIA were so wrong about the Russians, INR has this unique capability of being able to do uh, surveys. It writes the questions and then it hires a Frenchman or a Ukrainian or somebody uh, somebody else to do the actual survey for them. But they did a survey that showed that the Ukrainians were going to put up a terrible fight. They were going to fight to the last man. That's what the survey told us. Well, CIA and DIA just sort of pushed that aside. You guys don't know what you're talking about. So again, INR was more on target, at least on the part that they were most familiar with, and that is the will to fight of the Ukrainian people. They got that right. Their survey was on target. 
they had the good sense to do the survey. They were did the good sense to to talk about it, and uh, they briefed it to Congress. But because the big guys, CIA and DIA, had a different view, what do you do? What do you go with the big guys, or do you go with the little tiny organization at INR? My my bet would be on INR, but I'm I, as you said, uh, I'm biased. They're national treasure. Uh, now that they can do PDB articles. I think the quality of the PDB has gone up because we've got INR, not just CIA analysts, uh, writing for the PDB. Well, this has just been mind-blowing to me, even though I kind of knew this was true. And I've been, as a former MI case officer myself who collected battlefield intelligence, that I'd gotten bits and pieces of this over the years that we were falling down in our national intelligence estimates and it just the cake was baked in Ukraine. Well, I was a national intelligence officer for East Asia for four years. And when I was an analyst, when we would do a national estimate, we would use the questions that we couldn't answer as the way we would make our program of research for the next year. So that if we had a question that we couldn't answer in the estimate, we'd say, okay, we need to focus on that. When I was the NIO for East Asia, all of the estimates I did were simply summaries of current reporting. Not a single one was based on research. In fact, one of the first ones I did was a warning of war in Korea. And they said, well, uh, we need 48 hours of warning. And I said, well, where did that number come from? <laughs> who, who decided that? Well, nobody would tell me. A year later, when I was getting ready to do the second iteration of it, I said, listen, I got to know, where did that come from? And they finally said, well, the, the sink in Korea told us we needed 48 hours. So that's what we said. 48 hours. Warning. Warning. We have to have the capability to know 48 hours in advance of a North Korean attack. That's what, but it wasn't warning at all. It was simply that a, a general in Korea said that's what he needed. So the intelligence community said, well, okay, that's what we need. Instead of looking at signs of movement of units towards the DMC or changes along the DMC, looking for indicators of an attack, they were simply going on the fact, well, 48 hours, we'll have that, and, and everything will be fine. Not a single estimate during that period of time was based on research. That's just astounding. I got to ask you a last question for today. I have a feeling, Carl, we're going to be back talking about this again in the future, and maybe not for great reasons. But in a sentence, you've said again and again, U.S. intelligence is broken, which is astounding. Tell me in a sentence how you fix it. You have to have managers who recognize that the number of analysts doing research are important to the quality of the current reporting going to the president. Until they recognize that it requires that research, nothing's going to change. They're just going to add more current reporters and say, well, let's, let's, let's do more quantity. Quality is not an issue for the managers at CIA. They have decided that, that we're not going to waste time 
having analysts write for other analysts. That's a waste of time. Uh, that increases knowledge that the current reporter could use, eh, maybe, but we're not going to waste our time with analysts who only write for other analysts. Well, you see what the price you pay if you try to take a shortcut. You don't do this in medicine. You don't do this in history. You don't do this in international relations. The only place where you don't do research is in the intelligence community with, what, $63 billion being spent plus $25 billion for uh, military. Well, it's not that we don't do research. We don't do research in the right way and the right system. No, 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 we don't do research. We do current reporting, and that's an entirely different animal. It's different well, let, than... Re- let me get this straight again. Are you telling me, again, I, I, I don't mean to keep banging, maybe I'm just too stupid to understand this. You're saying that no one is studying Chinese tank treads? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I know that without an order of battle and without a table of organization, you can't really do much research, and you certainly can't do China-wide research without having some way to tap into the FODINT and SIGINT databases. And without that, you just simply are guessing. It's just flotsam and jetsam out there. It's not being organized in any useful way. It's And, and there's huge gaps right. in the well, collection. Well, the collectors have excellent databases, but they were designed for the collectors, not for the analysts. The collectors... For example, photo interpreting go by installations. Uh, there's a building here, and they call it a building, and it has a number. Uh, somebody needs to put all those numbers of those buildings together and say, oh, by the way, this is an artillery uh, battalion, or this is an infantry division. And until you do that, it's very difficult to be- you can't do very much without having that sort of information. You can't go deeper. Yeah. The basics. Yeah. Um, last question. Um, Bill Burns, the current CIA director, is a career diplomat, State Department product. Do you think he knows what you know and will implement changes no. at CIA? No. Because? I, I, I don't think that there's anybody at CIA that even remembers what research was like. Uh, They've all gone. They've retired. uh, They're old folk like me. Uh, And all of the new people at CIA for the last 20, 25 years have grown up on doing what happened last night, event-oriented reporting, explaining what happened in Iran last night. Well, I would argue that to know more detailed about what happened last night in Iran, you need to have done a lot of research prior to that time. You have to have context. That's right. Without that context, you're guessing. And what we're doing has got very smart people making guesses. And sometimes they're pretty much on target. And other times when it really counts, like most recent Russia uh, fiasco. And my, my experience was the rock war would not have been fought if the intelligence community had been doing research. 
I did a study for the for the director, the DNI, uh, afterwards, and I looked back ten years from the Gulf War to the Iraq War, not a single research paper was done on weapons of mass destruction. Uh, there were a couple of papers that were called research, but they simply were a summary of current reports. Uh, so guess what? We miss weapons of mass destruction uh, because we weren't looking for it. We didn't do any research. We simply started a war based on our telling the president, oh, by the way, boss, they've restarted their nuclear weapons program. What are you going to do about it? That, that, that wasn't Bush's fault. That was the intelligence community giving the president lousy information that could have been easily, if DIA and CIA had been doing their job, could easily have gone a different direction. Yeah, on that depressing note, uh, as I said before, we're going to be back discussing, this is a kind of a hobby horse for me getting intelligence right. I mean, there, there can't be anything more important than national security other than a president's own bad decisions. But at least we've got to arm a president with the facts and the truth. And we're, we're, just, not, we're just not doing that very well, despite $83 billion a year in the U.S. intelligence budget. Anyway, as I said, we'll be back revisiting us. Carl Ford, we're out of time. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. Uh, you're, you are a, a great citizen. Thank you for your years of, of service to America. Well, I appreciate it. It was my honor. Carl Ford is largely retired now, but recently he started a column on Substack called The Footnote, where he offers a far more detailed critique of systematic problems in U.S. intelligence. By the way, because the CIA was the lead intelligence agency during most of Carl Ford's career, we reached out to them for comment today. A spokesperson there referred us to the Office of Director of National Intelligence, which was created in 2001, because he said, it's an intelligence community-wide issue. We'll be following up with the DNI, and we'll update this as needed. Jean? And we'll be talking about information and intelligence gathering on domestic groups when we come back. A reminder, you can subscribe to our podcast and leave us a comment on our Twitter accounts. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at SpyTalker. And you also can subscribe to SpyTalk on Substack, where there's a lot of great original content. Back in just a moment. The 31 men piled into a U-Haul truck last weekend were described as looking like a small army by a bystander who reported them to police in Coeur Idaho. They were stopped and arrested, allegedly en route to disrupt a gay pride rally. Included in the group was Thomas Rousseau, the leader of a white nationalist group called the Patriot Front. So we called John Lewis a research fellow with a program on extremism at George Washington University to ask about them. Patriot Front is a neo-Nazi organization that itself emerged out of the, the dying embers of a different neo-Nazi group, Vanguard America, which is probably most well-known for its involvement at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, as well as its connection to James Fields, who, while not a member of the group, was seen famously now 
carrying the shield of Vanguard America prior to his hate crime, uh, where he drove his car into a crowd of counter protesters, injuring more than 20 and, and killing Heather Heyer. Um, since that point, obviously, Vanguard America got a, a not insignificant amount of publicity, of, of public attention. And so the group disbanded or claimed to disband only to shortly after reform with many of the same members, including now Patriot Front leader Thomas Rousseau, exact same ideology, exact same core ethos, core goals, core ideas, which again, important to say is not patriotism, is not traditional American values, is not Western chauvinism, but is, is a neo-Nazi ideology, is, is a, a, a violent neo-Nazi ideology. They were headed to a pride event. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I, it, it absolutely tracks with this kind of continued set of interconnected grievances that we've seen emerge from the right-wing ecosystem in the past several years. And you can really trace it, you know, even if you want to start in 2020, you can really trace that through line from COVID-19, anti-mask, anti-vax protests, you know, reopen protests in, in the spring of 2020, through the, the response and blowback to racial justice protests in the summer of 2020, and then obviously, as, as we all know now, um, the kind of, you know, hodgepodge of actors who were aligned with the Stop the Steal conspiracy leading into the, the events of January 6th. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to just say that, you know, that, that set of narratives didn't die on January 6th. It was just kind of the, you know, the end of the beginning, as it were, right? And so what, what you saw then were, you know, the same actors, the same voices, the same members of Congress, the same you know, mainstream media voices who continue to parrot, continue to have that call and response with these violent domestic extremist groups on the right. And so what you saw was then the narratives that January 6th was a false flag, that it was Antifa, that it was the FBI, um, which then of course then bled into inevitably uh, debates around critical race theory in schools, anti-trans debates, um, and now the latest kind of manifestation of that, which has been, you know, this kind of hyper fixation on on grooming, on drag shows, on um, and and in in this instance here on on pride events. This seems like quite a strange and toxic stew of ideologies. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's always important to note that you know Patriot Front is just kind of one node, one group in this you know interconnected nexus of white supremacist, anti-government, neo-Nazi, conspiracy-oriented movements like QAnon, you know, they all they all read from the same hymnal, as it were, right? They all, if even if they don't share the exact same core goals, the core ideologies, they can be mobilized against a shared enemy. And I think that's that's the important takeaway here. It's not just you know the the single siloed group, but what this movement continues to show is this us versus them in group versus out group mentality where as soon as that you know that kind of laser is, is hyper focused on whoever the, the the enemy of the week is you see this broad cross section of individuals who again emerge from the same spaces with the same ideologies and the same methods against that out group against that enemy and often, often, if, if not explicitly with violence, then with narratives and grievances that mobilize individuals to commit acts of violence in furtherance of it. 
In Idaho, police had information that the Pride rally might be targeted, and yet it was a caller who apparently tipped them off to this group of men getting into a U-Haul. What does that tell you about law enforcement and whether it's getting better on keeping tabs on these kind of groups? Yeah, so I think that the information that's come out to date is a little bit muddy because there were there were reports as you said in the press conference um that that it was a it was kind of a concerned citizen call uh and some other reports even from i believe local cops on the scene who were recorded saying that an informant inside the group had 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 tipped off uh law enforcement about about the plans um either way though i think you know for for all the kind of bigger picture strategic level questions that that we can and, and should discuss here um i think this is a good example of what proactive, you know, uh, violence mitigation law enforcement activities in these spaces looks like. Um, in a lot of previous flashpoints, you know, if you look back from 2015, 16 through present, whether it's Proud Boys, whether it's Patriot Prayer, whether it's Rise Above Movement, you know, these active clubs, law enforcement has generally tried to keep their hands clean, tried to keep the hands off and kind of let the protesters and counter protesters go do their thing over here in this space and then they leave. Or, you know, in, in pre previous Patriot Front mobilizations in DC and Philly, you've seen law enforcement kind of escort them to and from the U-Haul or, or, you know, wherever they, they, they had traveled from. Um, whereas here, again, for whatever reasons or combination of reasons that, that, are, that are, you know, presently a little unclear, law enforcement was willing and able to, you know, head that off, prevent any potential riot, any potential acts of violence, and really nip it in the bud um, and, and try and get these individuals out of the environment, off the streets as quickly as possible. So you mentioned there's a possibility that there was an informant in this group. Do you have any sense of how much infiltration law enforcement is doing? I think, you know, historically what we've seen, again, if, if you want to trace this back, whether it's Proud Boys and Oath Keepers or Adam Waffen Division or, or the base, um, you know, it can it can reasonably be assumed that at least one person in these chats is either an undercover informant uh, or or you know an online covert employee by the FBI. And again, I think for for all the kind of strategic kind of whack-a-mole questions you can ask about what the the top level federal response has been to this kind of burgeoning threat, I think one thing you have to say is that domestic law enforcement has time and time again shown the ability to infiltrate these groups and in, in many of these cases, um, you know, in, engage in those disruption efforts before violence takes place. Whack-a-mole, is that how you characterize the federal response to this? I, look, I, yeah, I mean, I think, especially when you look at a lot of the recent activities involving, again, a lot of the, you know, the violent neo-Nazi strands of this, a lot of the movements, what you've typically seen is that continued focus on you know, the, the post 9-11 era CT strategy of, you know, what is the biggest group? What is the most dangerous group? And how do we try and cut the head off the snake? What you've seen time and time again is a, a, a shift in trend from a, a core, a real organizational hierarchical approach to this kind of nebulous, very online, small cell-based structure. And again, that, that, that's not to say that domestic law enforcement has not, again, been able to disrupt in many of these instances, but I think what it's come at the cost of is a strategic understanding of, of the movements. This, this kind of hyper-focus on infiltration and disruption has, has been effective, and it's, it's, it's been able to, again, you, you, know, you see 
groups or, or nodes like Atomwaffen, like the base, you've seen them disrupted very effectively, but I don't think you've really seen the US government develop the kind of strategic level understanding of what motivates and drives the movement as a whole in, in, in recent years. Even though the FBI has identified this as a top threat, even though DHS is issuing bulletins on a regular basis about these actors, you think they really don't get it? They don't have the intelligence analysis to really understand this? Well, I think I think, you know, when you know, it's it's a question of implementation in, in a lot of these spaces. I think, again, a, a, as you just flagged, you know, th there was a very, very timely bulletin on, on June 7th uh, by by DHS talking about the Buffalo shooting and, and these kind of, you know, disparate ecosystems um, that, that, that motivate lone actors. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to see in terms of the response, what that has looked like or, or what has changed. And I think that, you know, one of, one of the big sticking points here is, you know, how the U.S. government intends to approach domestic terrorism. And I think that that's to date is still not entirely clear. You had the- Well, that's because politically it's uh, it's a third rail, right? Right. Yeah, and you, exactly. So you had you had the the DT strategy come out last year that you know talked about putting more money into the the DHS prevention efforts. Talked about strengthening partnerships, you know, which again are always good talking points. But um, you know, as long as domestic law enforcement is kind of you know using kids' gloves, for lack of a better term, and and saying we're not going to look at the ideology, we're going to look at the violence because so often the ideology intersects or, or at least gets very, very close to that gray area of, is it protected speech? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think, again, January 6th is a great example of this where, you know, the warning signs were there. You, you saw individuals not just saying, I'm going to go to the Capitol to exercise my first amendment right, but we're going to the Capitol with a gallows to hang Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi. But there is so much of that kind of language online. Yeah. We both see it all the time. Yeah. How can law enforcement possibly keep tabs on all of it and figure out where to draw that line between what's free speech and what is an actual threat? Well, and I, I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, the, the two things that always sit at the crux of this, right, which is resources and, and triaging. And, you know, I think it also, you know, there, there's still somehow the active question, you know, I think the folks over at Lawfare especially have really hit this hard, which is, you know, the FBI after Gen 6 claimed that they didn't have the authority to, to sit and look at, you know, open Facebook pages, open social media posts, which, you know, I think, you know, by, by my amateur reading of it does not appear to be, to be the case. And so, you know, it's, it's always this question of how much of it is a real true logistical impediment and, and how much of it is is concerns about political blowback, concerns about, you know, um, th things of that nature. What do you think? I think it's it's it's, it's always going to be a little column A, a little column B, unless we see some lessons learned, some significant shift in in, in policy, in, in how these cases are understood, not, not just in terms of making a criminal case, but understanding again at at at, at the, the the 10,000 foot level you know what is this movement who are who are in these you know who are the actors who are motivating this movement forward and how do you kind of prevent those actors from mobilizing folks to do the exact same thing again so real intelligence analysis then yeah so you've suggested that law enforcement should have a better understanding should have a more analysis about uh, what motivates these groups um, and what triggers them. 
But even if they had that, there's not going to be any diminishment of this threat, is there? Not, not in the short term, uh, certainly. But you know, I think looking at actions of local law enforcement in, in Idaho this weekend does prevent potential or does present potentially a, a, a decent model going forward. You know, I think that when you when you look at a lot of the previous acts of violence, especially at, at the kind of street fighting level in 2020 and 2021. What you see is the very hands-off nature by local law enforcement to kind of throw their hands up and accept that you know this is something that's going to happen. You know, if we have to make arrests, we'll make arrests, but we don't want to get we don't want to get in the middle of it. And I think that 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 approach is is completely counterproductive and you know really allows these groups the space to to make more propaganda. The more the more times that you can you know show photos of these you know 31 guys you know, looking like they're questioning their life choices as they kind of sit on the grass in, in handcuffs or in zip ties, you know, the more you can show these people, not only are these guys dangerous and, and they should be taken seriously, but, you know, they're, they're not brave. They're not, you know, protecting your way of life. They're, they're violent extremists who, you know, local law enforcement acknowledges are a threat and who they're responding to appropriately. I think we have this tendency to hyperfixate on, this group, right? This, you know, group A is, you know, the most active, most well-known representation of this thing. And I think historically that's worked because we've talked about Al-Qaeda, we've talked about ISIS, we've talked about these real organizations that exist that, you know, especially in the case of ISIS, has territory, has bureaucracy, has structure. But today, I mean, Patriot Front is, is no more than a website, a group chat, and maybe you know a, 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 a couple flyers here and there. You know, if Patriot Front goes away tomorrow, the threat does not change. You know, if if Thomas Rousseau you know takes his toys and goes home and then forms a completely new group with a new name that's also neo Nazis, they still pose the exact same threat they did yesterday. You know, the the rise and fall of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Patriot Front, Rise Above Movement, they are representative of the state of the threat, but they're the symptom, they're, they're not the whole story. And so I think whenever we talk about the tip of the spear, the, 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 the violent manifestation of domestic terrorism today, I think you have to kind of broaden the aperture out, talk about the totality of conduct, not just by the domestic terrorists, but by their support networks, by the online ecosystems that continue to promote what they do, continue to enable what they do, and the individuals you know, on the right in the mainstream, members of Congress, again, individuals who have massive, massive platforms who are saying the exact same talking points, the same rhetoric, the same you know, violent kind of culture war, us versus them, in-group versus out-group you know, mentality that continues to inspire this kind of wide range of actors, not just groups, but actors and these disparate movements to commit acts of violence. And I, I think that's that's where we have to focus on going forward. That was John Lewis, a research fellow with the program on extremism at George Washington University. He points out that there are a number of potential flashpoints for far right violence ahead, including the midterm elections, the Supreme Court's upcoming abortion decision, and I'd add potentially any indictments that might grow out of the January 6th investigation. Jeff? Well, just more depressing news on that front seemed to be sprouting up everywhere. NPR ran a story this week about uh, 
extremist neo-Nazi group flourishing in New England based in Massachusetts. These guys seem to be everywhere. And another thing that strikes me is they pick up these memes that actually had me recall the tag that the Republicans put on the Democrats in 1972 after George McGovern was nominated for president. They called it the party of acid, amnesty, and abortion. These extremists today have picked up on trans issues, gay rights issues. Uh, they've, they've pinpointed that as a weakness, as, as an avenue in where they can mobilize greater numbers outside their weird neo-Nazi ranks and appeal to, you know, Trump Republicans and bring more into their fold. So you've got this kind of melding going on with extremist behavior and mainstream Republican thinking these days. It's, it's, it's upsetting. What else, what else can you say about it? Not much. It's upsetting. That's it for our episode today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks for sticking with us. Again, I'm Jeff Stein. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun because you deserve the truth.